Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Repent. Um, I think some, so many of the things that we are attaching ourselves to at the moment that have captured our hearts are false uh, idolatries of Id- idols of ideas, ideologies, political things from the left and the right. Um, and I would ask you to, to repent. The only way you're going to be free from the enslaving forces that, that the, and the principalities and powers that are locked up into those things is to experience something of the repentance. You only give Jesus your heart. Your heart does not belong to anything else. Keep your heart pure to Jesus. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. We long to see the body of Christ look like Jesus. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact and donate. And don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app to be notified when new episodes come out each week. And go leave a rating and review. It's easy. It only takes a second, and it helps us find new listeners to the show. Just go to the show page on the app that you're using right now and hit five stars. Previous guests on the show have included Rich Robinson, Onia Okuwabi, and Emma Cotterall. You can go back, listen to those episodes, and more. But today's guests are Alan Hirsch and Rob Kelly. Alan Hirsch is one of the founders of Movement Leaders Collective, as well as founding the Forge Mission Training Network and 5Q Collective. Known for his innovative approach to mission and thought leadership, Alan is highly sought after movement strategist for leaders, churches, and denominations across the Western world. He's the author of numerous award-winning books, including The Forgotten Ways, 5Q, Rejesus, The Shaping of Things to Come, and The Permanent Revolution. He and his lovely wife, Deborah, hail from the land down under and currently live in Melbourne, Australia. Rob Kelly is the founder and CEO of 4 CLT Network. Rob is also the co-founder of the City Leaders Collective with Eric Swanson, which connects and equips city network leaders globally. Rob is the new co-author of the book Metanoia with Alan Hirsch and the founder and lead author of the State of the City Report. Prior to this, Rob served 13 years as a pastor, along with numerous other leadership positions, including co-founding CLT1 and lecturing at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Alan Hirsch, along with Rob Kelly, wrote Metanoia, How God Radically Transforms People, Churches, and Organizations from the Inside Out. We have a great conversation on repentance, movements, organizational change, unlearning, relearning, vision, future th- thinking, and more. This metanoia process that they take us through is really important. How do we have our minds renewed? How do we shift paradigms and have our minds blown? 
Join us as we discover how to engage in paradigm shifts individually and organizationally so it sticks and it lasts. Here's my conversation with Alan Hirsch and Rob Kelly. Alan, Rob, welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast. I'm excited to have you on. Thank you so much for being here and joining me. Awesome to be here with you, brother. Um, yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Great to be here. I was just uh, reflecting on you know, one of, some of the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark when he says, repent, that the kingdom of God is near. Um, and so you have this book called Metanoia, and it is this sort of repentance. What is Metanoia? What was Jesus saying at the very beginning? What was he trying to convey? Okay, so I mean, like what we... If you like to say them in the word metanoia, which we might or might not be familiar with, which is strange in itself because it's a very biblical term, <clears throat> is uh, the Greek word which is commonly mistranslated repentance. And I say mistranslated because the dude who did that was a guy called Justin in the fourth century as he was translating the Greek text into the Latin Vulgate version. Translated metanoia into penitentia, which kind of uh, is an aspect of metanoia, but it picks up but um, on a particular um, a moral, uh, the moral implications of our, our sins and how we feel about them. So it's an idea of doing penance. That's the idea, and um, that kind of kind of highlights an aspect of um, repentance, but doesn't get the whole deal. Um, what metanoia means, and just play with the word meta above beyond, over. We know that word. And then noia is your thinking, your rationality, your mind, mindset. So it's thinking fundamentally differently to the way you do now. So we suggest in the book, and uh, not alone in this, um, this uh, the best translation of this idea would be um, paradigm shift or having your mind blown. So metanoia really means that. And and why Jesus would use this? I mean, right at the beginning of his of his ministry, is that because if you didn't have a metanoic mind, one that is able to have your mind blown again and again, you're never going to get it. And and isn't that exactly what happened? Is that the people with hard, you know, set mindsets, the religious folk particularly, that it all worked out, and it should have been ready for the Messiah. It should have kind of been the ones able to most recognize him. That was Israel's purpose to some degrees to give birth to the Messiah. The very one that they were formed as a people to bring into the world, they couldn't recognize because their the hardwired kind of thinking didn't allow them to think about it. So, if you're going to understand Jesus, even now and on, you have to have an ongoing capacity to have your mind blown because you never get him in a box. Yep. Uh, a lot of times when we think of of repentance, um, when we think of this words, we also often think of it as an individual transformation. This is a, an individual piety type of thing, and I'm going to repent. What is the communal aspect of this repentance, and how can we start to do this communally and not just individually? It really is both a personal and a function. Uh, we see that throughout the scriptures, by the way, both. Uh, and I mean, you think of repentance isn't just the word that we see in scripture, translated metanoia, we see instance after instance of it um, in the scripture uh, from 
the woman at the well, to Paul on the road to Damascus, right? To the two men on the road to Emmaus, to, I mean, Thomas, when he encounters Jesus, like that they encounter Christ in such a way that their mind is transformed. What does Paul say? Be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Well, that renewing of your mind, that posture that we have um, towards radically reorienting our, our mind is is not just an individual thing. It's something that we do collectively too. You see that through the journey that that Jesus walks with with his disciples over a period of time, where they have an idea of who the Messiah is and who um, what it what the kingdom is, and now Jesus is over and over again reorientating their minds collectively. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said this, but I tell you this. Like over and over again, there's this there's this tra- there's this shift that he's this paradigm shift that he's helping them come to as a group of people that are following him collectively. And so as we talk about in the book, this isn't just something that you have to do individually. And it absolutely is because so goes the leader, so goes the the organization, but it's something that it's a process. It's a journey that all those that are, um, whether it be part of a church, a ministry, a business, whatever organizational communal sense you find yourself in it's a journey that you 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 go on together and so um and that's why we really kind of in the first half of the book talk about more of the personal um journey and what is metanoia what does it mean to live in a posture of of metanoia but then the second half is what does it look like to journey together uh organizationally um communally um and so that's the really kind of a foundation that we lay in the whole second half of the book. Uh, just to re- to undergird that, <clears throat> and we should remind ourselves, I mean, we tend to always read the Bible from an individualist's perspective, you know, and that would always be um, a problem. In the scriptures, primarily, I mean, are, are written to groups of people and collectives. And so when um, repentance is, you know, usually addressed to Israel or, Israel as a whole, how does that happen? I mean, how, how do we figure that into our theology or, or Judah or, you know, that they're, you know, they're called to repentance or conversion? And, of course, in the, if you think that's just Old Testament, you think of the New Testament is the book of Revelations where, the, where Jesus confronts the seven churches. Now, only one of them gets away with it, gets a complete kind of tick of the box. The rest of them says, well, Jesus says, I've got this for you. You know, this I have against you. If you don't repent, metanoieta, if you don't repent, well, come take your lights out. You know, I'll remove your lampstand, but it's kind of like that. You know, come take your lights out. But in, in a sense, I mean, you know, this is important because, I mean, you know, we, we barely understand repentance as an organic phenomenon anyway for individuals, but it's the only way a collective group of people is ever going to be able to change. If we don't even understand it, there's no way you ever. Re- and that's why so many of our churches don't ever move from from you know s- single model or something because they just get stuck in the moment. Yeah, they have no way of actually getting to the core of the problem. Which metanoia is a, is a gift. It's a totally gift to us. It's not a burden. It's a fantastic thing. You know. Yeah, I think metanoia is this gift. I think in recent years, uh, we have seen uh, an unveiling of what is underneath some of the systems of the the Western church, primarily, and some of the, the things that are not working, that are really hard. And I know 
you know, interacting with with both of you before that you have lamented these problems. Like it was a difficult thing to walk through and to see uh, the church hurting in this way. Um, but there is a, a place in a journey now that we are uh, a few years out of some of this unveiling. We have seen some churches start to take this transformation and this change, but not everybody has yet. How do we start the journey when we start to realize maybe the system isn't doing well? Maybe the church isn't healthy. Maybe we need to move to a different place. Maybe we need to have our minds blown and have a paradigm shift. How do we start the journey? This is something in the book we spend uh, kind of a whole chapter on what does the downward journey look like? If the if it's a U curve, you got to go down before you go up. And that process begins with how do we um, be truly like open-minded organizations? We talk about in systems theory that systems are perfectly designed to produce exactly what they're producing. It's like the kind of the first rule. And so are we going to be honest about what the system of the church is producing. Like over and over again, you meet with pastors and leaders and the brokenness of the systems that that are there. And, and what's what's it led to in our Western context? Well, it's led to a divided, declining, um, consumeristic, cultural Christianity with epidemic levels of pastoral and leadership burnout. Okay. This is what the system constantly produces. If that's the case, then if we're going to reverse engineer this problem, like are we actually going to be able to look at what is causing this 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 you know systems um, uh, issue over and over again? And so, like, what paradigm is that? Like, are what? And this we talk a lot about, like helping identify your paradigm dysfunction or where are you blind to your own paradigm? And that just comes with beginning a journey that you're. In hopefully a more open-minded journey to kind of uncover a lot of the things that are in your system um, that um, are leading to the outcomes that they're leading to. And um, unfortunately, that process, um, although really good, isn't very fun, is what we find. Over and over again, you meet with leaders and it's painful. You think about it, oftentimes it's because their salary is tied to that system or their uh you know, um, their identity is tied. Their thing that they're being held accountable to um, is being tied to it. That, um, and it's just really hard to get people on board and begin a process to identify what those issues are because they're so entrenched uh, in a not just an individualistic identity, but into a corporate identity. And so that's why we talk about what does it look like to you know, if you're going to shift paradigms, it's going to require fighting for unity of your leadership. It's going to, re- it's going to require uh, seeing reality for what it is like, and being honest and being truthful about it. it it's, you know, it's going to re- require helping paint a vision of what could be that's better. You know, we talk about that, you know, if you want to shift paradigms, it requires telling a better and alter- alternate story of the future. And so these are things that, and that we said, you know, what's Max Dupree, the first rule of leadership? To, to define reality. It's like, we'd say like, you just have to be able to be honest. <laughs> and like, that's a hard place to be when you've been running for so long, um, in a system that, uh, you know, you were, you were brought into, you didn't create, but it's, it's what shaped you and what formed you. And so this is a, that's why we call it really the metanoia or movement journey, because it's a process and it's going to take time and you need to do it together.
So, Al, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I think I was just going to highlight that it has to be a process. Um, and sure, there are moments when we experience Matt Norway as like this flash of insight. And but um, um, and you know, it does change you. I've had a, a number of occasions like that. Most fundamentally, when I was filled with the Spirit, it was the most phenomenal. Excuse me, I was fundamentally changed, and um, I mean fundamentally. And uh, but you know, mostly it's like you know, there's if you want to take a group of people on that journey, it means as what was said, you know, it takes a, a journey of unraveling, facing a wicked problem that if you don't resolve it, it's going to resolve you. Uh, it's going to do you in face it. I mean, uh, and and to to allow it to expose our, our frailties, you said it there, and our flaws and our unfaithfulness, and our our our, um, our role in that as beneficiaries or stakeholders in that system. So he's right; it's a painful thing, but I, I, it's also the most joyous thing because we get to lead um, an organization into a whole new level of performance and faithfulness. Because as you get to design the journey, you know, redesign along with what we call the out curve, uh, which you, where you, you know, you take a paradigm and build it into the platform. The platform becomes a basis for a whole lots of new practices. You know, you get to really see the church be what Jesus intended us to be. So it's so, um, yeah, it's a challenge, and 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 one if we don't do it, we we basically, you know. Whatever we'll lights taken out, I think we are in that moment now, in the church, in the history, where, and it's it's only going to get more. Uh, you know, if we thought we just escaped from COVID in the last messy few years of politics, I think you know with the approach of AI and all systemic problems, you know, global problems, of, you know, environmental, uh, mad politics. You know, those things are going to blend to create very, very big disruptive events. And we have better be ready to have some deep change. Uh, time to mature up, everyone. Yeah. So I've been, since the book came out, I've talked a lot There's just about how they've been using the metanoia journey that have gone through it before. And I think probably one thing that uh, I've been most encouraged about is that, you know, even though everyone will admit it's a painful process, there is something to be said about understanding what type of pain comes at what point in the journey and having like handles along the way that help you in that process is like really been practically helpful. Um, I t we talk in the book about like the, uh, like if, my wife used to be a big runner and she, she once did the, uh, rim to rim run, uh, through the grand Canyon where you start on one side, go down grand Canyon, cross the Colorado river, back up the other side. Apparently she finished by three o'clock, which is like amazing to do. <laughs> like if you do that run, I couldn't do it, but she did. But the thing with knowing you do the rim to rim, what happens at the beginning? Well, you first, you're asking yourself, can I do this? Like, this is going to be really hard. This is a long thing. But in the journey down, it's a different type of pain. You're trying, you're, it's a jarring pain. You're trying to write, you know, you know, not slip, not fall. You're trying, you're, you're trying to get your balance. And, and as you're going down the dirt, uh, dirt side, you get to the bottom, you made it halfway, you're feeling good. And you get to refresh yourself in the Colorado river, look back from where you came from and look up to where you're going. And on the upside, 
what happens it's it's painful but it's a different type of pain it's your you know your 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 legs are burning your lungs are swelled with oxygen but it's a hopeful thing cuz now you're building and there's there's always going to be growing pains but those are the exciting kind kind and so that's been like a just a very practical thing as we talk to leaders that are on the journey understanding that it's going to have this this you know you know, unlearning before relearning. Uh, and I use the word lightly, but they're uh, deconstructing before reconstructing. I know that's a loaded word in some terms, but that's a process that you're coming to understand what what the issues were, how do I unlock them, how do I change, really come to a realization of of who you are individually and collectively and where God's leading you, and then building the up curve together. And again, it's hard, it's going to take work, but it's hopeful. And it's exciting. You're you're climbing the mountain together, and um, and you really in the you know, we say in the book you, you can't jump the chasm. You don't get to start from this side of the room and jump to this side. It's always going to be that process. And so, evil, oh, evil Knievel, <laughs> jump the chasm. <laughs> Is there a church that could be evil Knievel and jump the chasm? Can we do it? I don't think. Well, so. you know, look, I, I can tell you this right up. You know. Being in the game for a while now, when we used to teach us in a group that I used to, we did a lot of the up, up curve dynamics. We would now call up curve very well, mind you. And the fact is that people weren't willing to go, not even for a moment, go down curve. What would happen is that they would try to jump the chasm, splat, and they'd go down, you know, and then into the valley where they didn't want to go. And oh, it doesn't work. And they've been there, done that. It's, you know, and that's the problem is that, you know, it's a plug and play solution, and you're trying to just find someone else's way of they did it and wish that we did it just because they did. Now it's it's it's, a, it's patchwork at best. It's bad leadership at worst. I mean, so it's you meant to lead a group of people faithfully into a future, not simply kind of you know follow some technique, you know. And um, yeah, so. No, we think this is unavoidable, and it'll become increasingly unavoidable. So. so um, I think our time is coming where God is calling the church to count. And I always remind myself that judgment begins with the household of God. I know one of the things that you talk about when the, uh, changing uh, from missional to to movement or movemental, um, I think what one of the things that you talked about just now is that it's not just a, a box that we could put on our problem to fix it and say, I'm going to take what has worked over here, put it over here, and everything's going to solve my problem. Why? So let's talk a little bit about movement and why do you talk movement? Why do you think that that is something that's going to to be a driving force within the church? And then if you have a non-movemental church, what are some ways to start to take that process to become a movemental church? Well, um, <clears throat> as someone who's very deeply involved and, you know, still is in what might have been called the missional movement, um, um, I, I totally believe that, you know, the the word itself um, yeah. it represents something of the hope of the church, um, that um, there is no plan B. Uh, so if we put the missional thing out of the equation, where do we go? Back to some church growth theory, back to 
traditional expressions or, you know, liturgical churches, they're not doing particularly well and they're not pricking in the ground, no matter what, you know. So there's no plan B anyway, but here's the problem, uh, I think Josh is suggesting, brother, um, is that, you know, the word mission was so quickly, it, it was adopted in the end, and then, of course, but not without, not with, under, with any understanding. And so, you know, if everything's missional, nothing's missional. And so that's what happened. And the word was co-opted to, and became just another technique word. It's a classic, you know, trying to jump the chasm without having to do any paradigm shifting. And um, that was hugely problematic. Why I tend to use the word movement now, I've also got the potential for making the same mistake, but it's the, um, I've tried to try and use a con- concrete expression of mission. Now, when you talk about a, a very concrete expression of it, movements are made to move. They're moving. And so they're the most missional expression of the ecclesia. And because they're moving and and um, and they're adaptable and they're on frontiers, you know, so there's a natural, um, you know, dynamic to them, which you don't get in a more static version. So I tend to use that because it actually gives us a kind of... Um, I said a concrete image of what a what a missional looks like. If you want to know what missional looks like, movements are the best expression. Not the only. There would be other ways of expressing the mission of God in the world, but movements are very embodiments of mission. So that's why. Like that. Movements are embodiments of mission. So now that we want the embodiment of mission, which is movement, and if a church is not embodying mission and it's not a movement church, and that they're static, they know that they need to have this paradigm shift, what are some steps to start to move towards becoming movement? I, I think we keep jumping around words. I think words matter, as I would say <laughs> used to me many years ago. Words define reality, and I think that it's helpful to just say them out loud. We've been talking about movement. We've been talking about static. I mean, I think that we're all speaking from actually biblical language when we talk about this, like what was, you know, the sent ones of the church, the apostles, the apostolos, the ones who were sent were by definition moving. They were sent. <laughs> the ones that were static, ones who were static as apostases, that's where we get the word apostasy. Okay. <laughs> so it's not, it's, it's actually what the word means. So if you are in apostasy, what do you need? You, you go from apostasis to, um, you know, to anos, right? Resurrection. You need to no longer be static. You need to be alive, right? Like that. Um, and that's what, so movement shows life. Like this is the, it's the, it's proof of the resurrection, like in people's lives, like, and in corporate lives. And so I would say it's, it's more than expression. Like I would say it's actually identity like level, like the church is a movement. Like I would probably, it's the movement of Jesus in the world, right? It's the, it's his, it's what he um, launched into existence as the father sent me. So I send you, right? This is the over and over again that we're called to live, you know, as part of his um, mission, the Missio Dei. And, and so 
uh, yeah, like to, to me, it's like, this is, it's, it's central to identity. And if we're going to live out of who we are, then that changes everything. And I think that that's goes to the heart of uh, not only what the book is, it's what Al's been, you know, you know, training and teaching the church for 20, 30 years and, um, and many others as well. But it's, it's like, what does that, what does that mean? I think it's reorienting the church from a place that we attend on Sundays that is a building like that is so much entrenched in the paradigm to the people of Jesus, you know, living out the purpose of Jesus, um, in, in, in the world, you know, it's like, I, I, I joke, never disconnect the person, people and purpose of Jesus in the world. They're all interconnected. And like when they're in alignment and in unity, you're going to see beautiful things. You're going to see life. You're going to see joy. That's why we talk a lot in the book about joy of metanoia. There's life. It, it's like, it's exciting when you're, when you come into alignment with the mind that created the universe and you're living in what he has planned in eternity past for you to do, as Ephesians tells us, there's life in that. And so um, I'm sure we can get practical on next steps, but we were talking all around these words. It just made me want to jump in and have a word nerd moment. I hope that's okay. Josh, just you were asking, so like, you know, how do you probably start that? <clears throat> I mean, this is something which, again, uh, is very deeply part of the book. And part of where I'm a phase of life, too, where, where I do think, you know, I still feel called to address issues of paradigm, um, and, and, but, but also to provide fruitful ways forward, so tools and resources and processes that enable the church to, or, or leaders, or themselves individually, but also the collectives, to take him on a journey. So really the first part of the book is written to try and provide that theoretical, theological framing and um, retrieving the word, word and concept from the scriptures and, and giving it new life. And uh, I think I think we achieved that. I mean, there's nothing, it's not a book like it out there, right? It's fair to say, I mean, we, there's not a particular book on metanoia, you know, from, so I think it's quite unique. Um, but the second half of that really is the attempt to provide precisely a process which um, actually is embodied in some of the stuff we do um, and what does, you know, uh, with the Mobile Leaders Collective and the City Leaders Collective where we take people on a journey of learning. Um, we do it in six months, but technically it's only putting, the journey could take much, much longer than that. Uh, if it's done really well, you know, uh, but it's, at least coaching people into uh, starting the journey of what it means to undergo metanoia and, and to experience the joy of it. Um, so it's quite detailed, but but if, if one's intrigued beyond that, uh, we have uh, we have um, cohorts that actually do this kind of stuff, and it's a wonderful learning experience along with other people where you can uh, participate in that. Uh, and, and and your leaders, so that we think it's always best done corporately, not just individually. So. I agree. I've gone through the cohort myself, and uh, it's fantastic. It's good. So anybody listening, you should sign up for a cohort and go through this with other people, and it's really helpful to do it with others, to have people on the same journey that are not uh, present there, but they're maybe in different cities, different areas that are, are wrestling with the same questions. It's really helpful to have some outside voices as well. And it's not just 
trying to figure it out on the inside. Uh, it's always good to have somebody on the outside. You know, one of the things I want to know is you go down to the bottom of the U-curve, you're, you're in the Colorado River, you're refreshed with new life. What does it look like for that paradigm shift to take place? What are we trying to move towards? How do we get the mind of Christ? How do we become more Christ-like? I actually think that potentially uh, out of the whole chapter on what does it mean to really be wholehearted is like coming into, um, uh, and this was beautiful work that Alan had done prior to me even being a part of this book project, which is it really ministered to me. It's just that you know we're created as whole persons, right? Mind, soul, and will, and like that. When you bring those together, we become whole-hearted individuals, and so. The point and premise of yeah, of that, it's like I, I kind of think about doing this organizationally. It's almost like a little bit like evangelism. And I don't know how uh, this is kind of like a parallel I've made is that when it comes to like the gospel, like this is good news that you've received, you can't give someone something that you don't already have. Right. And so there's a premise of like, if I'm reorienting myself to Christ you know, like that has to happen pr uh, prior to us walking down this journey um, co collectively. And the collective journey is really probably has more to do with aligning your organization to really the core purpose and uh, that you're, you're going to live out as a collective body, whether that be a local church, ministry, mission, organization, whatever it might be. But it's like you, you, that aha moment is like, okay, we're really getting clarity on what Jesus has for us to do. And that's a beautiful moment um, that, that that's why we keep going back to. There's a joy about, think about it. Like think about just this practically. And this is what I always want to go to is that um, think about that aha moment. Anytime you finally something clicks, it's so gratifying. I don't know if this is just you, but it's like, oh man, you finally get it. You're having a tough conversation and you're not, and you're missing each other in that conversation. And then both people finally like, ah, oh, yes. And there's a connection there. There's a moment of insight. It's like, that's, that's metanoia in the most real sense. Like you've just had a shift of paradigm. So like, that's something that Jesus wants us to pursue regularly and collectively so that we can come to that, oh, like, yes, Jesus, this is what he has for us to do collectively. And once you know that, I've kind of feel like, especially when it's clear, really clear, the the paradigm platform practice, like they actually become, even though it's hard work, easier in the process because you have such clarity on, on the way that you would go. And so I just, again, I compare it to the individual. The collective is similar to the individual. You're going for the aha. How, what were you going to say? Well, uh, let me just uh, make a bit around on the whole hearted thing. <clears throat> and the reason why it's important, because in the Bible, um, as you guys know, uh, God um, wants our hearts because it seems that if he gets our heart, he gets us. So the word heart uh, comes up in throughout Scripture over 900 times. And only about four or five times does it refer to the physical organ of the heart. In that deep, up in the earth. It's always got a symbolic, metaphorical significance. So it's a highly loaded term. And it's important for us to understand that because it, clearly it's critical that, you know, in change. And so, you know, for the individual, as in, you know, we have to bring all dimensions of the human being 
what we might call the anthropology of the heart, we need to bring that into the equation to, to experience change. So if someone repents simply, you know, or tries to repent by just bringing their mind to the question, thinking differently, well, gee, that helps, but, you know, it can get you in trouble if you can't make choices that are going to stick around the world, or you have no, you know, have no passion for it, or it's not like you feel deeply motivated by what you're thinking about. Well, you might actually be very motivated, <laughs> but you never thought about it, and so you, you know, dumb about it, and you, you just don't know. Uh, you're not going to experience metanoia because your your heart is not whole heart. In the same way, an organization uh, needs to work at those dimensions of of the heart, the collective heart, if, if it's going to experience whole heart change. Failure in keeping one out of the equation means you will never really be able to bring about a lasting change. You need mind that is clarity of thought and a kind of a mental map and sense of purpose drives and directs you gives you wisdom you need a soul in that you know it's it's a it's what you love what gives you you and your passion that motivates you from deep within um the soul of an organization is it's uh it's vibe it's passion and then of course you need a capacity to make strategic choices and willingness to kind of stick with them you know to not be um not be yeah, whipped around by every you know every different option, you know, so to stick with things. The combination and bringing those three, the more you can actually bring them into the equation, the more and experience a really lasting change. So that's at the heart of the process. And then of course you've got this U curve journey, which we talk about the unlearning, going on this journey of becoming, you know, unraveling, becoming aware, going on a search for alternatives, okay. beginning to come kind of Look for different alternatives. Try and sense what God's saying. The up to what we call upstream processing, and then uh, you know coming to a place of you know eureka moment together. Then beginning the journey up on that curve. And by the way, one never reaches. You know, learning is always iterative. So once you get towards the top, you're going to start again. In order to get to the next, you know, peak, you're going to go through the next valley, and so. This undulation process, but again, that's how we grow. That's how learning takes place. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Before Before you go, is there one thing that you'd like to say to the church that's been on your your heart? Repent. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, no, no sir, I mean quite seriously, <laughs> repent. Um, I think some so many of the things that we are attaching ourselves to at the moment that have captured our hearts are false. Uh, idolatries of Id- idols of ideas, ideologies, political things from the left and the right. Um, and I would ask you to, to repent. The only way you're going to be freed from the enslaving forces that, that the, and the principalities and powers that are locked up into those things is to experience something of the repentance. And you only give Jesus your heart. Your heart does not belong to anything else. Keep your heart pure to Jesus, I would say. So that's very, very, very important for us at the moment. Yeah. Well, thank you, Al. It was a pleasure to have you on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking some time out, I know, in your busy travel schedule thank you. to do this. Thank you, Josh. So. I know this is like trying to, you know, you know, the planets aligning and all that stuff. But thanks for coming, for keeping your eyes. Yeah. Thank you. All right, Rob, now that we can, uh, we can talk without Al, 
uh, hovering over here on the side. We could uh, really talk about practicalities. What does it look like? I know that you've done city transfer transformation work uh, in their Charlotte, but you've done it in 80, 90 cities. Um, and it's really important for us to figure out what does it look like to be the kingdom of God together uh, in cities and how we could start to transform cities. How have you seen, have you seen this work, this metanoia process, this U-curve process work at all within cities? How does it practically play out? Yeah, I think so often people, like there's such a loaded word is the word revival. Um, and I think it's even, um, it's what people long for, but don't really know what it is. And it's like to bring new life to something. And I think that there's a desire to see new life in the church within cities. I think that, um, ironically, when you study revivals, like, uh, you know, historically, what's the first mark of revivals? I just find this to be funny. It's like over and over again, you can pick up just about any book on the historical revivals and they'll say personal repentance leading to corporate repentance. It's the first mark they'll see. Read Jonathan Edwards, read all the, all the good stuff, right? It's all there. Then we'll talk about um, consistent proclamation and demonstration of the word of God. They'll talk about uh, united believing prayer, the people of God coming together to ask God to move in a locality. A.T. Pearson said there's never been um, uh, there's never been an awakening in any country or locality that did not first begin in united believing prayer. I remember reading seminary, it just stuck with me. Uh, many all these years later, and but it comes down to it's like, man, are the people and the leaders that God has brought together in the place where they've been called to lead going to humble themselves and repent and ask God to do something new in the place that they're? Well, guess what? That's happening everywhere. It's like a really beautiful thing, and it's uh, and it looks different from the kingdoms of this world because it's not. <laughs> of the kingdoms of this world. It's it, it looks more like the inverse hierarchy of the kingdom that we're called to follow, right? We worship a Lord that didn't come to be served, but to serve. If we want to live, we're going to die. If you want to be first, you're last. I mean, this is the way of the kingdom <laughs> that, our, that our Lord taught us. You wash the feet, take the lowly seat at the table. These are, and so um, that whole process is is happening. And, and it also, you know, the scriptures are so rooted in geography. This is the thing why I love to talk about. Uh, we talk about the ecclesia, and this is where we can, you know, start digging into examples. But first, let's what is it? It's the you know the people, the called out ones, right? The people of God. But how is the ecclesia expressed in the New Testament? Five different ways: the individual, Joshua, you're the church, I'm the church, right? <laughs> the local church, the house church. And do you know how many times the house church is named in the New Testament? I found this super interesting. Four times total. Gaius, Archippus, Nymphus, Priscilla, and Aquila. There's others that are referenced, like the people that met in these houses, these church houses, but actually named. I find it super ironic, too, that two of those are led or co-led by a woman. And it's just interesting. The city church, though. Let's go to the third Far and away, the most common expression of ecclesia in the New Testament. It's not even close. 38 times just in Acts. A third of the New Testament written to the church of cities. The seven letters in Revelation. Like it's over and over again. So the question then becomes, it's like, what does it look like for the church to operate in a really biblical motif, ecclesia? Well, it has to operate some level as the church of a city, right? 
And um, just to, to finish off the other two, the regional church is, I think, named three times, Galatia, Macedonia, and Asia. And then you have the church universal. So it's like for us, like how do we then, if there's one church in a city, not, you know, I would people joke, how many churches are there in Charlotte? It's a thousand churches in Charlotte. No, there's one church in Charlotte. There's a, roughly a thousand beautiful, diverse expressions of that church. And so, so how does the church then, we ask the question, operate in the oneness that our Lord Jesus both prayed for and commanded in the upper room? Like, how does it live out the oneness that we already have? This is just, I mean, this is over and over again, this theme of union with Christ. And so that's really where we begin to work with cities and, um, and uh, you know, help develop um, citywide infrastructure, which I call networks, citywide networks are really movemental infrastructure. They're networks that operate much like a trellis, where a trellis is a movemental architecture, right? It helps facilitate the life of the vine across this thing that the whole point of it is that it would bear fruit. Okay. So build citywide network infrastructure that is movemental infrastructure. It allows the church to move the way Jesus desired for it to move. Rob, that was uh that was really insightful, especially about revival and figuring out what does it look like for the church in the city to start to have a trellis. And I think that right there is a paradigm shift for us to figure out oh, the church is the church of the city. It's not just my local expression of that church. Um, and that's a huge paradigm shift that we all need to to take and figuring out how to go on this U-curve, this unlearning journey to unlearn the, hey, it's about me and my church, and I'm going to compete with the other church down the road, and we're going to try and, and get more money and we're going to more followers and all this and we're competing against each other which is ridiculous and funny to then going into how do we get the heart of christ in the middle of it and be wholehearted people with the mind the soul and the will and then move up into figure out what is the trellis what are the paradigms the practices uh, the platforms the things that we need to put into place so that we can have movement movemental thinking and processes that are happening throughout the city and network the city. So if we have something like that, this this paradigm shift, this metanoia of a city, I think we're going to be okay. I think we're going to, there's some hope and there's some joy. Like when you're talking about the joy of metanoia right there, that is joy for me to be able to see this, the city here, like here in Kansas City, if I could see that and the the church of Kansas City to be able to be that uh, I am just full of joy in the spirit. Like that's it for me. I don't want to compete with other churches or expressions of the church. I want to work together with the church in the city. So Rob, you're doing some great work and, uh, yeah. What do you want to say about that? I'll just say like, this is drinking from the deep as well. The reason it's exciting and we can, I know we got to close here is that it's rooted into the fiber of how God created us in him, in his image, we're brought into the oneness that resides in God, uh, one God, three person, but it also, it's, it's actually the end of God's missionary redemptive plan, eternal plan is that we're going to spend forever together, perfectly united to God and each other in a perfectly redeemed city, the new Jerusalem. 
God loves people and he loves cities, so much though that he has chosen to spend forever together with his people in a city. So what does it look like to actually show a foretaste of that beautiful reality to the cities that God's placed us in right now? And that's just life. There's life there. That is the incredible redemptive mission of God. Since the first city was born out of rebellion after a murder, the first murder that ever took place, and they said, I'm going to build something, a monument to myself, and God redeems it all at the end, and he's like, I'm going to live with them in a city. Beautiful. Like, how incredible is that? It's so good. It. It's so it's so life-giving. And yeah. so that we were created. It's what God desires. Amen. Well, Rob, thank you so much for this conversation. It was fantastic going through this metanoia journey uh, together. Um, and I'm really excited to see cities transform as well. And what does it look like all over the world for the, the churches in the city uh, to look like Jesus to be wholehearted people, to have the mind and the soul and the will of Jesus together. So thank you, Rob. Thanks so much, Joshua. It was great to be here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, it really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.